Good morning. The parable of the lost sheep, Luke, Luke 15, 1 to 7. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Johnny, and thanks, James, as well. My name is Johnny, too. Uh, I work full-time for Alpha UK, have been doing so for about six years. I live with my wife, Naomi. When I married her, she became Naomi Campbell. If you're aware of the significance of that, it gives away your age. Uh, we live in East Belfast, uh, sort of the Castlereagh Hills or the Braniel, just depending on who's asking. And uh, I'd love to achieve two things today. The first thing is I would love to uh, explain why I believe that sharing your faith in Jesus with someone else is an amazing thing. And secondly, I would love to provoke you to think a little bit differently about how that might happen. There, there might be some ideas that you have carried for a very long time about how Christians share their faith that I would like to mischievously disrupt a little bit today. So those are the two things that I would like to do. Before I get started, I want to tell you a story, or rather, uh, let me share a story with you of someone else's first experience of sharing their faith. See if you can figure out who this might be. The writer said this, I had been prepared for the wider world of my neighborhood and my school by memorizing verses from the Bible, verses like bless those who persecute you and turn the other cheek. I'm not sure how Garrison Johns knew this about me, but some bullies just have a sixth sense. Most afternoons, Garrison Johns would catch up with me and he would beat me up. I arrived home every day bruised and humiliated. My mother told me that this is the way of Christians in the world and I should get used to it. She also noted that I was supposed to pray for him. One day I was with seven or eight friends and Garrison Johns caught up with me that afternoon and he started jabbing me and jabbing me and jabbing me and jabbing me and that's when it happened. Something inside me snapped, and just for a moment, all those Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I grabbed him. To my surprise and his, I was stronger than Garrison John's. I wrestled him to the ground, and I pinned him. Suddenly and unexpectedly, the bully was at my mercy. This was literally too good to be true. I punched him in the face with my fist. It felt so unbelievably good. So I punched him again. Blood spurted from his nose, the most beautiful crimson in the snow. Say mercy, I said to Garrison. He wouldn't say it, so I punched him again. More blood. Say mercy, 
He still wouldn't say it. Then, out of nowhere, my Christian training reasserted itself. Say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I snarled. He wouldn't do it, so I punched him again. More blood. I tried for one last time. Garrison, say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And would you believe it? He actually said it. Just like that, I was an evangelist. And Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. Now, ever since Nigel told me that little story about his school days, I kind of wish it had been. Um, That's from a book called The Pastor by Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson translated the message paraphrase of the Bible. He was a world-class theologian, pastor, preacher, leader. Um, The point that I'm trying to make is that Eugene Peterson, who was a world-class pastor, preacher, theologian, he had a pretty complicated relationship with evangelism. And if you'd like to know the truth this morning, I've been working in sort of what you might call full-time evangelistic ministry for over six years, and I still have in my personal life and in my own spiritual life a really complicated relationship with evangelism, both the concept and the practice as well. You see, sometimes I feel this ambient guilt in my life over not doing enough or what I maybe should have done or could have done. Sometimes I have experienced deep disappointment in sharing my faith or a a sense of failure in sharing my faith. And sometimes I've gone through seasons of life where I have completely lost faith that Jesus wants to use me to share my faith, to see somebody else impacted for the kingdom of God. And I've just lived in this uncomfortable place of like defeat. Barna, who uh, are a, a research agency, did a survey a few years ago with U.S millennial Christians, so Christians of my age in the United States, and they asked them lots of questions about evangelism, and what they did was they they gave them statements, and they asked them to either agree or disagree with the statement, okay? So one statement was, and bearing in mind these are young people following Jesus, part of the church, one statement was, a relationship with Jesus is the most important thing in my life. 91% of the Christians surveyed agreed with that statement. Another statement was, Evangelizing people with the goal of converting them to Christianity is wrong. Evangelizing another person with the goal of converting them to Christianity is wrong. 47% of US millennial Christians agreed with that statement. Why? Now, I don't think that's where we are. But I, I, I can sense that there are some things going on in the, in the climate of our society that are probably taking us in that general direction where young people growing up in the, in the church feel like a relationship with Jesus is really important to them, but they feel that there's something about sharing that faith with others with the goal of converting them that's actually morally wrong, that's not the right thing to do, or at least if it was the right thing to do, they've no idea how to do it. Why have we ended up there? Well, there's, there's kind of a voice in society that's getting increasingly louder that says, I just don't want to hear it, okay? I've heard it all before. I've kind of tasted and seen that that the Lord is bad or the church is bad or the Bible's outdated and I just don't want to hear it. I've heard it all before. Sometimes I have seen, um, or maybe you have seen, people doing evangelism, trying to share faith in in Jesus in a really well-intentioned way. Their heart is in the right place. But honestly, 
if you think about some of your friends, if you think about family members, if you think about people in your world who don't know Jesus, there is something about the method that just feels a little bit disrespectful or feels a little bit dishonoring, and you're like, I'm not sure I would want my best friend who doesn't know Jesus to experience what that person is doing to them. The other problem I have is that I really like comfort. Comfort is uh, really important to me, and I like convenience as well, and there's something about sharing faith that is always inconvenient. I've never seen a method of sharing faith in Jesus that doesn't involve some kind of inconvenience. And when you put all of that together, what you end up with is a rather complicated relationship with evangelism. And yet, and yet, I have come to believe passionately that sharing your faith in Jesus with someone else is an amazing and important thing. Let me explain why. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus is answering a million dollar question. What is God like? People wanna know an answer even today to this question. What is God like? Do you know the first uh, astronauts from America who went to space? Well, the first astronauts from Russia actually who went to space, when they came back, they were asked, did you see God? And they said, no, therefore he mustn't exist. The first American astronauts who went to space they came back and they were asked, did you see God? And they said, no, but if we'd taken our helmets off, we would have. People wanna know what God is like. And A.W. Tozer famously said, whatever comes into your mind when you think of God is the most important thing. And Jesus said, if you come near to me, I will show you and I will tell you and I will teach you what the Father is like. I will show you God, right? The scriptures say, that Jesus was almost like, he was the exact kind of representation of the Father. Uh, somebody famously said, in God there is no unchrist likeness at all. I love that. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. And he showed us what God is like. And in Luke chapter 15, he has this extraordinarily diverse audience, okay? It says that um, he was gathering tax collectors and sinners around him, but he also had the Pharisees and the teachers of the law looking on. So here's Jesus in front of the good and the bad, the religious and the rebellious, the kind of rich and the poor, the right and the left, and into this moment, he's going to say something about what the Father is like. He's gonna tell us something about God that's really important. And he says, I want you to imagine that God is like a shepherd. Now imagine he has 99 sheep safely in his care maybe 99 sheep safely tucked away in the church. But what's his priority? What's he longing for? What's he thinking about? And the answer that Jesus gives us, well, he never insinuates in any way that God doesn't care about the 99. He never suggests that God doesn't care about people who have kind of found their way into relationship and friendship with him but he does say that God's heart is really specially orientated towards those that he's been separated from. And my problem with this story is that I had a great Sunday school education. Did you have a Sunday school education? Do you remember it still? We used to do this thing in my church where it was called the League of Church Loyalty. And uh, I'm a Presbyterian, East Belfast Presbyterian. And in the League of Church Loyalty, every week you would come in, you'd get a wee card stamped for coming to church and, you know, sit there, be a good boy, see you again next week. And at the end of the year, if you had a full card of stamps for just one day, God's merchandise store would come to church. 
It was a fantastic day. And you could trade in a full card of stamps for like a pencil case or a notebook or something that said, smile, Jesus loves you on it. I had a fantastic Sunday school education, but here's the danger. Stories like this become enshrined in your imagination forever as a children's story. And when Jesus said, this is what the Father's like, his heart is really uniquely orientated towards those outside the church, towards those that he's been separated from. When Jesus told that story, he was talking to adult disciples and followers. And it was like he was saying, I want this story to shape how you think about God and how you represent God to the world and, and how you kind of, um, how, how you follow me. He wanted it to, to shape us. And the problem is, in my mind, the stories are often seen through the lens of a kind of singing cucumber. Jesus said, when you carry a compassion for someone who, has, who doesn't know Jesus or has been separated from, from the church or is outside the faith, when you carry a compassion for that person, you accurately reflect the image of God and you demonstrate and carry the Father's heart. It's an amazing idea. I love the simplicity of it. Sometimes the truth is I don't really like evangelism programs and outreach and neither does God. God is not particularly concerned about evangelism and programs and outreach. The reality is that God just loves people and there's a sort of anchoring and beautiful simplicity in that. Sometimes my faith gets really cluttered and I need to come back to something as simple as God just loves people, especially those who have been separated from him and invites me to kind of join him in reaching them. In 2020 and 21, I experienced a, a huge amount of disorientation and tiredness, sometimes exhaustion. And as I did Alpha Online, like James has spoken about, and I watched people coming to faith on Alpha Online, and I saw people encountering God in fresh ways, it, it's like when you walk with someone who doesn't know Jesus or who, who's coming to know Jesus better, it's as if like spiritual blood starts pumping through your system again. And for me, Alpha Online was this little pocket of joy in my life in a, in a sea of sort of disorientation and, and exhaustion. Watching people come to faith in Christ. The thing is that in, in Luke 15, Jesus says, you know, that the, the Father's heart is orientated in this special way, but he also, he also puts it into practice. He moves towards action. Uh, and it says, doesn't he kind of go and, and look for the lost sheep until he finds it? And here's the problem. It's the putting it into action that's the most difficult part. Certainly, I've always found that. You know, the Bible's not a book about who God used to be. That's part of why I love hearing stories like what James has shared with us today is that I, it reminds me that the Bible's not about who God used to be and things that God used to do. The Bible's about things that God is doing today uh, and and. God is moving today in real time and he's putting this stuff into action. God is reaching people who are separated from him with the love of Christ and the truth of the gospel. Here is the most frustrating part of the story, the most infuriating part of the story. God is completely insistent upon our participation. It's a nightmare. Honestly, it's a nightmare. It would be easier if he was prepared to accomplish it without any of our participation at all. But there is something in, in, in the way that God works that is mysterious and beautiful and infuriating where he wants to, to reach people, but he is completely insistent upon our participation. And I don't want to sound harsh about it, uh, but 
I need, I need to say this because it's true for many Christians, many of us, evangelism and sharing faith can remain a theory for a lifetime and not a practice, not something that we step into and partner with God in. But what if I told you genuinely that sharing your faith in Jesus is easier than you think? What if I told you that it will still be inconvenient to share faith in Christ? But what if I told you genuinely that it was easier than you think? You see, what was Jesus' primary strategy for evangelism? I wonder if someone asked you that question. How did Jesus evangelize? How did he share the gospel with people? How did he see people impacted for the kingdom? What was his primary strategy? You see, I think his primary strategy is here in Luke chapter 15. The first verse says, tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. And then the Pharisees and the teachers of the law accused him of something. They said, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. He welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Robert Karras once said, if you study the Gospel of Luke, and I think this is extraordinary, if you study the Gospel of Luke, every single time you meet Jesus, he is either coming from a meal, at a meal, or going to a meal. Amen? Every time you meet Jesus, coming from a meal, at a meal, or going to a meal. If someone asked you to explain the significance of the cross, what do we do? We tend to give them a theory or a theology or a little lecture in miniature form. We maybe stumble over our words. We struggle a bit. We try to explain it. What did Jesus do the first time that he was explaining the significance of the cross with his disciples? He gave them a meal. John Mark Comer said this. He said, somehow in all of our methods and all of our strategies and all of our plans to share our faith, we've lost touch in the Western church with something that's easier something that transcends time, and something that is so much closer to Jesus' primary strategy for evangelism. Today, we would just call it hospitality. A few years ago, I was at a church in South Belfast doing an Alpha Sunday like this, uh, low church, and there were some people lined up, a bit like James, just talking about their experience of encountering God on Alpha and, and how that was for them. Uh, and this older lady stood up to tell her story. And she said, you know, I, I'd grown up in the Catholic church as a child. I probably hadn't been to church in about 40 years. I had, I had no real living faith at all. And somebody invited me to come into Alpha. So I reluctantly accepted. I came along with this friend to do Alpha. And when I walked in the door, somebody handed me a cup of tea. She said, now I had lost my husband about seven years prior and she had been widowed really young. And she said, you know, it's, it suddenly occurred to me when someone handed me a cup of tea, it suddenly occurred to me that for about six and a half or seven years, I had been making tea for myself. I think it had been a full seven years from anybody else had made a cup of tea and put it in my hand. And she looked at me in the eye and she said, Johnny, it was as if Jesus himself was saying, sit yourself down, Phyllis. I'm gonna look after you now. And in that moment, I realized that for most of my adult life, I have treated hospitality as a means to an end. And hospitality is not a means to an end. 
hospitality is an embodiment of the gospel itself. It says, because he was rejected, you're accepted. There's a place at the table for you. Why do we call a hospital a hospital? Why do we get hospital from hospitality, do you know? It's because there's a really mysterious connection that we don't fully understand between being welcomed and experiencing healing. That's where hospital comes from. Welcome so often leads people on a journey of healing and Jesus welcomed sinners and he ate with them. In the Western church for a very long time, we've seen evangelism through two primary lenses. The first is proclamation, where we say a lot. Somebody like me gets up and they say something for about 30 minutes and we invite people to come to faith. And Billy Graham did that for 70 years and he saw millions and millions of people come to faith. We've relied heavily on proclamation. The problem is that there are thousands of people in Bangor who are not going to turn up to a proclamation event. People today are proclamation resistant. It's becoming less and less effective. You see, on social media all day long, people are seeing proclamation and they're totally exhausted by it. They're also the second or third generation now who don't attend church. But you've, people used to ask you, where do you go to church? Today, you would ask somebody, why would you go to church? And the thing is, they, they think they know the story. They think they, they get Easter, they get Christmas. The problem is they just don't care. And they're probably not gonna turn up to hear our proclamation. The second thing we've relied on is apologetics, where we answer lots of difficult questions for people, but sometimes we find we're, we're not answering the questions they're really asking. And we also feel quite disempowered because we don't have all the answers. And it's like, what if someone asks a question about that? You know, what if you get James in your group? Nightmare, like James, he asks all these difficult questions and you don't have all the answers. Well, that's gonna put me off alpha, right? Now, proclamation and apologetics are really, really important but there actually is another uh, way that we can lead with evangelism and sharing our faith that maybe has been a little bit lost. And I think it's the way that Jesus led. He welcomed people and he ate with them. Do you know people used to come on Alpha asking, is this true? Is it true? Today they come asking, is this somewhere I could belong? Is this a place where I could belong? Exhibit A. John Tyson said, Alpha's just a love trap. It's just a love trap. What we do is we, we, we say to people, come with all your questions, bring whatever questions you like, and at the end of the course, they still have a load of questions, but they're saying, that, but they're, they're sobbing, and they're like, I've never felt so loved in all my life. I've no idea, I had no idea that church was like this, that the people of God were like this. And do you know what's so liberating about hospitality? There's no qualifying bar. You don't require a degree in theology to welcome people and eat with them. You don't need to have all the answers to welcome people and eat with them. In fact, it's probably better if you ask a good question. Do you know how many questions Jesus was asked in the gospel accounts? 183. Jesus was asked 183 questions. Do you know how many he gave a direct answer to? Eight. Jesus asked 307 questions in return. What does that mean? Well, I was awful at Maz, so I don't know. But somebody else worked out that it means Jesus was about 40 times more likely to ask a good question than give someone a direct answer. Can you ask someone a good question? You can share your faith. Can you eat with someone? You can share your faith. 
can you open up your life a little bit and let somebody in on who you are and what your life is like? You can share your faith. Paul said we love people so much we didn't just share the gospel, we also shared our lives with them. There's no qualifying bar. There's no future like holier or more brilliant or more perfect version of you required. If you can welcome someone, listen to them, love them, eat with them and ask them a good question, I promise you, I promise you, you can be an amazing evangelist in the hand of God and see God working in real time and take part in this extraordinary gift that God gives us of almost like Christian midwifery where you see the Spirit doing something amazing and get to be present as it happens. Where do you start with all of that, just as I finish? Well, the best way that I've ever found to start with it, and you're thinking to yourself, well, you would say this, they pay your pocket money, and they do. But the best way that I've ever found to start with some of this, to lean in, to carry the Father's heart, to begin to partner with God in sharing faith, to welcome people and eat with them and, and, and begin to practice the, the, the extraordinary Celtic tradition of hospitality. I mean, the Celtic monastic movement evangelized the whole continent once doing this, showing people um, the fruit of our faith before we give them all the facts, treating people as an honored guest, giving them the best of all that we have, allowing them to taste what it's like to be part of the Christian community so that by the end they're asking, my goodness, I love this, I wanna be part of this again, tell me what I believe. We evangelized a whole continent doing this once. And where do you start? The best way I've ever found is just a simple, thoughtful, personal invitation to Alpha. 94% of people who come on Alpha have been personally invited and brought. That means James is in the 6% who look it up online, where can I get an Alpha course? Not many people do that. The vast majority have been personally invited and brought. In order to, to do this well, we have to find a way to personally invite people in our world on the journey. Around one in six invitations tend to be successful. So in order to successfully invite someone on Alpha and to journey with them, you may need to think of three or four or five people in your world, in your family, um, who you could send a message to, a text message, a WhatsApp, and say, listen, I I'm gonna do Alpha in my local church. This is what Alpha is, and I would love you to join me on that journey. And you see, once you've sent the invitation, that is a tremendous success, because what happens next is the prerogative of the Holy Spirit. But I'll give you a little clue. Do you know what happens when you start to pray for someone? When you start to invite them to something like Alpha? When you send them a little WhatsApp or a little text message? Do you know what happens? And I've seen it so many times. They start to bump into God's grace everywhere they go. They'll just be going through their ordinary week and they'll, they'll bump into and kind of encounter the grace of God in something and think, that's weird. It's, it's as if our, our praying and our, our inviting begins to, to partner with God working in their life. You maybe need to invite a few people to come. And once you've sent that invitation, it's really the prerogative of the Holy Spirit what happens next. I've maybe said enough. I wanna invite you in this term as you think about Alpha, as you journey through Alpha. By the way, if you've never done it yourself, I would wholeheartedly encourage you to do it. I think you'll love it. You will love it more if you bring somebody with you who is estranged from church or not sure where they are with faith or just have some questions. 
but I think you'll, you'll really, really love Alpha. I've never found anyone after nine weeks of Alpha who said, I regret signing up for this. I've only ever heard people say, this has been wonderful for my faith. I think you'll enjoy it. Let me encourage you to pray for someone outside the church. Let me encourage you to cross-pollinate your table with people who know Jesus and people who don't and invite the Holy Spirit to be involved. Let me invite you to take someone for a coffee um, maybe text just a small handful of people and say, this is happening in my church and I would love you to come with me and ask the Holy Spirit to be involved. When you take a little step of vulnerability, inconvenience, and you partner with God in carrying the Father's heart, Jesus will meet you along the way. Amen. Let me pray for a moment. Uh, Father, I've finished speaking this morning, but I know that you are still speaking. I pray that you take my words and the words of your scriptures. Lord, this beautiful story that Jesus told us of what the Father is like and how we should imagine him and how we should follow him and be shaped by his heart. Um, I pray you would take that story, Lord, and you would use it to encourage us and to, um, to change us uh, and to lead us. And I pray, Father, that this term we might have the extraordinary privilege of seeing your Holy Spirit do amazing work in the lives of people who don't know Jesus or who aren't sure they know Jesus, and that we would discover afresh that the Bible is not about who you used to be and, who, and things you used to do, but that God is on the move in real time and that you've invited us to come and be part of it in Jesus' name. Amen.